Okay, don't tell the world, but I'm having headset issues again. Uh, I'm having Skype issues. Like, my mute button has apparently... Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody, and welcome to the Ruby Rogues podcast. Chuck is off this week, so I'll be your host. Uh, with me today, I have David Brady. 404 poop metaphor not found. Josh Sesser. Good morning. Katrina Owen. Good afternoon or evening from the Arctic. And we have a guest rogue this week, Arlen Walker. The button today is Mr. Garibaldi, get that police box out of my office now. Very nice. James, I know you don't run the show very often, but you forgot to mention yourself in introductions. Oh, yeah. I am James Edward Gray II, who doesn't run the show often (laughs) enough to remember how to do an intro. So Today we're talking about off-by-one errors. Off-by-one errors. But today, (laughs) the good news is I reclaim my tie for most episodes of Ruby Rogues recorded, so it's a very special day. We have some announcements to make before we get into the show proper. Actually, before we do that, why don't Arlen, why don't you introduce yourself since you haven't been on the show before? Okay. My name's Arlen. That's the Twitter handle as well. I uh, do some freelance work, but right now I'm doing a full-time gig at a company called PKWare. The old guys in the crowd will remember PKZip back from the uh, IBM PC days. The current... uh, Focus of the company is data encryption and compression. Are, are they are they still in Dearborn, Michigan? Um, no, they're in uh, they're in Dayton, Ohio, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay the the old my college days were spent compressing stuff onto floppies, and every time you ran PKZip, it would say you know copyright da da da, da you know PKWare and you know Dearborn, Michigan on it. And yes, I ran it that many times. That's awesome. Uh, so, Arlen, uh, you're cleaning up their websites with Ruby, or no? Um, not yet. I only been I've only been there a week. Good answer. Okay, so as I said, we do have some announcements. First of all, we have uh, we need to announce um, some support from listener Dave Newton, uh, who has signed up for our unofficial rogue status on Parlay. Uh, which means he's contributing the most to help uh, support the show and uh, keep us doing this since we're all, you know, recording the day after Christmas and skipping out on family time and stuff. That's uh, We really appreciate that. So thank you, Dave. Uh, we just wanted to mention that we appreciate you uh, on the air. We have some more announcements. Dave, Dave, we freaking love you, Newton. That's right. <laughs> Henceforth known as Dave, you are amazing, Newton. Right. <laughs> Okay, and we have some more announcements, so let's go to Josh Sesser for the best of Parlay. Okay, so uh, 
if you're living under a rock and don't know what Rogues Parlay is, it's our uh, listener email list. It's private. You have to pay us money to get on the list as a great way to support the show, which Dave Newton has uh, done in spades. Uh, right. So uh, the best the best email thread on Parlay in the last week was uh, entitled DHH episode. And uh, I don't know. We had uh, we had about eighty. 80 uh, emails in that thread, which I think is pretty much a record except for the introduction thread. And uh, this was, uh, you know, people had been talking about uh, some of the topics that we addressed on, what was it, episode 56, James? Yes. Yeah, episode 56 with, with David Henmar Hansen. And uh, it split off into a thread and was chunking away. And a lot of people were uh, saying what they think DHH meant on, meant on occasion. So um, we uh, poked David and he hopped into the email thread on the list. And we had a pretty spirited conversation about object-oriented design and maintainability of software and uh, various other bugaboos. Uh, and it's still going strong. So, um, that was, uh, one of the more awesome threads we've had on, the on Parley in a long time. So yes. that is the thread, how us geeks spent our Christmas vacation. <laughs> yes, it was great. <laughs> okay. We sure, have sure, sure beats dealing with relatives. <laughs> <laughs> we have one more announcement about a survey, which David Brady will tell us about. So, what was the best Ruby Rogues episode this year? Was it uh, the Railsbridge episode with Sarah May? Uh, one of the book club episodes, like uh, Land of Lisp with Conrad Barsky? Uh, was it uh, the Solid episode with Jim Myrick? Was it the DHH episode with DHH? Go to rubyrogues.com slash survey. Let us know. We'll tell you why later. All right. And I think that concludes our announcements. So let's get into the show. Uh, this week's episode is called learning from the past, and we decided to do this episode because Arlen wrote a concerned blog post slash email to us. Um, so, Arlen, why don't you tell us what that was about? Well, the basic uh, sentiment that set me off was the idea that a developer or I, I suppose he can be extrapolated to be anybody, uh, could not possibly learn um, in this specific instance software development patterns and could not possibly begin to understand software development patterns until they have felt the pain of not using them. And that notion that kind of went unchallenged struck me as being completely anti-scientific, not just unscientific. Um, because the whole premise of education is that we learn from mistakes other people make. We don't learn from, we, we don't learn only from our own mistakes. And to require somebody to learn only from their own mistakes means that the, the state of the art will never advance because eventually you'll get to the point where you don't have enough time in your life to make all of the mistakes in order for you to learn from them. Uh, this sounds like someone who not understand the pain of not have fire. <laughs> okay, so that th I think that's a that's a pretty uh, good solid theoretical foundation for learning from others, you know, via you know, reading or language in some form, uh, and that but that's that's up against learning from experience. Yeah, but there's uh, there's vicarious experience as well as direct experience, and um, 
the uh, I think the one of the examples I used was um, a uh, a person from a, from a major open source project told me once about a new uh, paradigm or a new new approach they had just dis- just read about and they just discovered essentially uh, called model view controller and this conversation happened in 2005 and if you go back and look at the history of software development you see in the 1950s you see agile programming in the 1970s you see agile programming and then in the 1990s all of a sudden you see it again we as an industry it seems have anterior or great amnesia. We have an ability, an inability to form long-term memory. <laughs> that, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, I, I believe um, it was at Uppsala uh, a few years ago. Alan Kay did a keynote presentation where he basically, you know, showed a bunch of videos of stuff people had done in the fifties, you know, on computers that just blew everybody away with what they were able to do. You know, fifty years in the past that is actually hard to do these days. <laughs> So, yeah, it's not like the guys 50 years ago were slouches or anything. So, Arlen, it sounds like you framed both sides, both your your argument and its own rebuttal, uh, depending on context, right? I mean, there's, on the one hand, there's, uh, you know, you're unable, you can't learn unless you experience it. But on the other hand, uh, we've got the eternal September going on, right? Where it's like every year the new, new group of freshmen comes in and everybody makes the same mistakes again. You can't learn unless yeah. you learn from experience, but we're obviously not learning from anybody else's experience anyway. And I wonder why that is. Um, that's uh, it's frustrating to me because it's, I've been around since you know the days of SDM seventy and some of the some of the serious waterfall um, software development ideas, and it just seems to me that we're repeating mistakes that we shouldn't repeat, and it's it's. It bothers me, and I'm not, I don't have an answer necessarily. What really bothered me about that set this off is that you guys didn't challenge the notion that we can learn from somebody else's mistakes. That's a good point. It, um, I mean, I thought you guys were better than that. And now we're actually going to show you that we can't even learn even when we're called on it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) There's at one point in, uh, in, uh, our past, we had a conversation about learning from the rules. And, uh, I, I brought up how, uh, you know, it, there's, you know, obviously we follow the rules most of the time, but learning when to break the rules is a very valuable skill, uh, to get the hang of. And then the counterpoint was made that, that maybe it's backwards. Maybe it's, we need to learn when to follow the rules. Which I, I don't hold that idea because to me, we, we put those rules, quote unquote rules, more like guidelines, right? Um, but we put those in place because more often than not, they lead to saner solutions or better solutions. Now, there's always going to be edge cases where, you know, oh, if I go off the map this time, I can actually do better than than our typical usual plan, you know, uh, and I think that's always going to be the case, which is why we have to, you know, never follow them. Absolutely. But, um, but, you know, I, I think, I don't know, I think, uh, programmers, you know, we're kind of, um, I don't know, anarchist. <laughs> we, we don't like the rules, right? We like to have as few rules as possible or, uh, or something like that, and and uh, we don't like to be chained down, and and so we resist that 
James, James, I think what you're, the word you're looking for is rules are for other people. Right. <laughs> right. Don't we all have that attitude? It's, I have the, the sign from the 1980s that says managing programmers is like herding cats. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, I don't know what it is about our particular profession, but we seem to have that disease more than, uh, more than most people, I think. Oh, in the original, James had brought up chess in that context, and that actually, that actually worked well for me because in chess, we've had that discussion over the past, uh, 10 years between John Watson and Jacob Agard, uh, in a series of books. But the, the idea of, having rules and when to follow them. C.J. Purdy, a great chess writer, once wrote, there are those who do not know the rules, there are those chess players who do not know the rules and thus are weak. There are those who know the rules and thus are less weak, and there, there are those who know how weak the rules are, and they are strong. Yeah, it, it really comes up in chess as, as a big chess player myself because... In chess, at any given time, there's so many criteria that can be playing in to an individual position that you found yourself in. And if you don't have a good knowledge, a good fundamental knowledge of those rules, you don't even know what you're supposed to be paying attention to. Even if you're going to choose to, to deviate or violate some rule, you don't know which, which criteria to analyze, to determine which way to go. Does that make sense? So you have to have that that fundamental understanding to be able to correctly assess what's happening. In, in a nutshell, you break the rules because you know why you're breaking the rules. Okay, can, can, we, can we bring that back home to software development? Sure. Yeah, sure. So when I learned TDD, I followed the rules of TDD to the point, like, no deviations whatsoever. And there were a lot of people who said that, well, there, you shouldn't always use TDD. I'm like, okay, but I don't know how to do TDD. So I need to, um, I need to do it until I know how to do it. A lot yeah. of people will ask, well, well, when do you not use TDD? And the thing is, unless, until you've used it so that so many times in, in situations where you maybe don't need to use it, it's really hard to say. Like, it's really hard to have enough context about a rule to, to know when to break it without really knowing the rule, without really having overused it and used it in, in, in situations that are correct and situations that are probably incorrect. So, so you're saying something like, if you have a hammer and everything looks like a nail, that means that you don't really know how to use that hammer well enough. Yeah. There's a, a, a morphism of that that, uh, yeah, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a smashed thumb. You know, there's a... Um, <laughs> I'll laugh for you, David. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. One of our old uh, episodes that I think is underappreciated is the episode where we interviewed Dan Cub. Do you guys remember that one? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah that was like science. Yeah, yeah, it was... What an amazing... That episode was like super eye-opening for me. And Dan is so good about making his learning purposeful. Yeah. You know, he, he'll adopt some rule. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm not sure I remember exact examples. Actually, I think I do. Uh, one of them was, um, replacing constants with methods. Like, never, mm -hmm. never using a constant. Just defining a method that returns that value and doing that. And then he would do that for like a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And then assess, 
is my code getting better or is it getting worse, <laughs> right? Is this, is this doing something for me or not doing something for me? But it's so purposeful, right? It's such yeah. a great way to learn. Uh, and that's very, you know, we're, we're programmers and we appreciate these, these facts, right? Uh, think about when we're optimizing something we profile it and see how much time it's running in and then, you know, make some change and then run it again because we all know that we can guess where the speed block is and, and we're probably wrong most of the time. And we keep doing that till we found it, but we don't always do that to ourselves. And I read a great article the other day about uh, a champion uh, StarCraft player. <laughs> yeah, those actually exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was amazing how much attention he had paid to his playing ability under separate circumstances. So, like, he would come in and make it ridiculously cold in the room and then play StarCraft over a period of time and make it ridiculously hot in the room and play StarCraft over a period of time and then analyze what are the conditions under which I play StarCraft better, right? It's very interesting. So I I think it's interesting to note also that uh, Katrina touched on this notion of internalizing <clears throat> the 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 ability that that you that you get that that I'm going to do this until I'm good at it, and uh, I, I was having a conversation with a coworker recently about the value of testing, and I'm I'm I love testing, and my hackles start to go up anytime somebody wants to question the value of testing, and the reality is is that uh, we have a full QA staff, and there's some things that we shouldn't be testing because. We, we're already paying money to have somebody else test this. So unless the test has a different way of generating ROI for the team, um, you know, just finding bugs, that's, that's QA's job. So we have to find ways to, to speed things up. And, um, I was only nervous about the part of the conversation where, um, I could see somebody, this, this person wasn't doing this, but I was talking to, you know, other people and they, they, they hear this conversation about, well, there's a trade off. So maybe there's a time when testing isn't great. And there are people who will go, well, let's just not learn testing and not bother to ever do it. Uh, we don't need testing. And then they, they sail on merrily down their way thinking there's this trade off. We've avoided it. Now I don't have to learn this. And they've missed the fact that it's more like the hobbit. You have to go there and then come back again so that you understand the trade off and then you can decide. And, and like, like Arlen said that you can, you know, you, when, when you understand that the rules are weak, then you're strong, but you have to. You have to have learned the rules and internalized that before you can make that call. This brings up a really interesting question about um, various practices, best or not, in, in computer science or in, in development, and whether or not you could take a beginner and lead them to learn these practices without necessarily them having felt the pain of trying to maintain um, a you know, million-line um, code base that where where the, this practice or these practices weren't actually implemented. Yeah, I'd like to take your 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 experience with TDD and extrapolate it a little bit, because if you've done a lot of work with TDD and found out where it works and where it doesn't, where it's useful to use it and where it isn't useful to use it, if you publish that, then the next person coming along can look at what you've published and say, well, maybe I shouldn't do that here. Yeah, right. But so if you're they decide saving they, them making a mistake. Right, but if they if they if they don't ever do it, and then they decide that they should do it, they're going to have a harder time. Does that make sense? 
Right. Yeah. They they should learn the principles of it, but they can at the same time learn from Katrina's experience yes. that it doesn't work in this area. Yeah. There. Yeah. I think. I think that. I, I think we're in violent agreement. There's. There's. I mean, you, you have to develop the habit, and there's no way to do that except to spend some time in the trenches. But I certainly agree that. Uh, it's absolutely a disservice to the, the newbies coming up in the field to just throw them in the deep end and hope that they can figure out how to untie the sack from the inside. Um, we could give, we could be giving them a much more sophisticated, uh, opinion going in, you know, un, you know, informed, you know, uninformed opinion going in, um, by saying, here are some nuances to look out for. There's another way of doing this. I, have, have any of you tried reading some of the head first books? Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, um, they're, I mean, they're, <laughs> depending on your context, they can be really useful or not. And, um, one of the things that I think that these books do really well is that they will, um, they will give you an idea and then they will lead you into making the, the typical mistakes that following that idea can lead to. And then after you've made that mistake in a very small toy program, they'll tell you a different way of solving it. So, for example, um, in their design patterns, book, they um, suggest that you build a program. They've introduced inheritance, and they suggest that you build a program to do some sort of Starbucks drink calculator, price calculator, and it turns into a nightmare of, of like parallel hierarchies, and then they introduce decorators. And it's it's in it doesn't take more than like four or five pages to really understand the use of the decorator pattern in this context. Yeah, it's really I, interesting. I think you just nailed it right there, right? There's a there's a, a sense of scale involved here. So you have, you know, people that say you can't learn it until you felt the pain. So say you start making some mistake, but at, at a minor scale, you can probably make that mistake a few times without paying a very big penalty, right? But then if we're talking about a big scale, a very large application or something where you've made that mistake all over it, then the pain really sets in, right? And that's when you realize, oh, I've made a huge mistake here and I need to, I need to rethink this. But, but if you have like an experienced mentor, say, working with a junior programmer and that programmer starts making that mistake, they may not feel the pain yet, but there may be opportunities still for the experienced mentor to say, see how you're kind of having a hard time doing this or whatever. We may recognize the pain quicker, you know, because knowing where things are heading or whatever and can show the better way. And then, you know, it, it still may be possible for that junior programmer to appreciate it on a smaller scale after it's been pointed out without having to go right. all the way to where it slayed the entire machine. You know? Right. The, yeah. And I think that some of that has to do with like a local maximum versus a global maximum that, that or minimum, depending on your perspective, that you could be you know, a junior programmer or, or anyone really can be in some you know, little trough local minimum on the on the overall curve and have and be really optimized for a particular approach and and that'll you know they're doing the best they can within that way of thinking about the problem but it turns out that if you you know cross over one of the local maxima you can find a, a much lower minimum right next door it's like oh well i you know i switched from you know using you know uh you know presenters to using a builder pattern and suddenly everything becomes much much easier 
So one of the things that I found is really excellent, and and James, you just mentioned mentors, and I think mentoring is is a great way to to, um, help educate people and and help them learn. But uh, sort of the 100% always on mentorship while, while developing is another word for pair programming. And I, I found that, that educating someone in uh, programming, as, you know, in, in, you know, once, it, once you're past a certain level of capability, it's, it's like pair programming is such a great way to educate people and to, to teach the context, which is, which is really what you're talking about, James, is having the right context to be able to decide between, you know, which of the rules you want to pay attention to. Yeah, and a lot of times when you're pair programming, you'll see somebody do something and you're like, why are you doing that? And they'll say, oh, I've just found that, you know, I, I tend to go down, I tend to go wrong here. So I've kind of built this habit that, that keeps me from falling in that hole, you know? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I remember Avdi saying that on one episode where he was talking about um, using parentheses around arguments when you, uh, when you, you know, send a message or invoke a, invoke a operation in Ruby. Uh, you know, we all know parentheses are optional, but we've, you know, many of us have learned that, that if you leave them out, often you have to come back and put them in the next, right. you know, the, the, you know, at the moment when you want to use the return value from that method. Yep. Uh, and, and Avdi says just like, you know, with new, with new, new developers he's pairing with, he'll just like drop that in and say, no, put the parentheses in. I know it looks cute without them, but just trust me, you'll want that later. And that's so wrong. So wrong. <laughs> and what's, what's awesome is that, like, once you begin to understand that, once somebody's pointed that out to you, then the cases where you can really safely leave out parentheses become painfully obvious. Like, yeah. the puts method, which never returns anything useful anyway, right? So right. <laughs> leave the parentheses out. Yeah, it just always returns nil, so we're good. Yeah. Yep. So I want to go back to living uh, or learning vicariously through other people's mistakes. Are there um, are there any ways that we can specifically go out and do that? Like, say, I want to learn from other people's mistakes in this um, context or this situation. How, what, where would I go? What would I do? In chess, we have a, a saying, study the classics. Um, There are classic games, classic sacrifices, classic positions, classic treatises on the game that you study. Uh, I'm not sure if we've made that effort to do that in the software development field. Um, There are definitely classics um, in the software development field in terms of books, but have we... Have we identified classic bits of code that people should read and study? I remember a, a book, I mm, can't remember the name of it now, that studied some of the Unix utilities, the source code of the Unix utilities. Oh, I think the first version reading. of the book, yeah, I think the first version of the book was, um, rewrote them in RAT4, and the second version, I think, maybe rewrote them in Pascal. But I don't remember now the name of the book. I'm drawing a blank on that. I, so I just read a, a blog post a couple days ago that talked about, um, or maybe it was even an article in the New York Times or something, it was, but it was talking about the sad state of, of most real world software. And how, you know, it's like if you talk to any professional software developer, they'll tell you that, that pretty much all production software out there is crap. It, you know, it's just 
it's <laughs> it's not well built it's not it's not well designed it's not well structured it's hard to maintain there's bugs in it the features don't work right etc and and we as professional software developers just accept that as that's the way things are because you can yeah. never make software perfect and well it's because so, we're bad people no no it's because you're bad people yeah you're well, yeah, yeah that's what yeah. i was gonna say you're yeah. okay fine <laughs> but the but the the way that that software gets taught is you're always looking at at the exemplary software the good software and i i was just thinking while we were having this discussion here about what are the you know, what are the examples of bad software that people should be looking at as counterexamples so i actually uh, I, I want to respond to the the all software is crap. Uh, first of all, I'm bad people, so what's your excuse? Um, but <laughs> the the second one is we tend to view everything as true or false, right? We love that that binary dichotomy of computer science, and so something is either 100% pure, clean, and good, or it's bad. And what somebody who's been in the trenches for five to ten years or more has learned is that you're going to have to ship some dog poop with the brownies, no matter what. Uh, there's Even if you had a perfect program, all you have to do is change one feature requirement, and now the whole thing is optimized for not that requirement. And suddenly, all this wonderful good stuff is bad. I've written programs that I was in love with that I thought was absolutely perfect, and I've come back to them a year later, one time as, as little as three months later, and said, oh my gosh, this is all crap. It has to all be thrown out. And... Um, I, I just wanted to point out that, that, that true false dichotomy. And I think senior developers kind of have this, this of, okay, it's 80% good, 20% crap. And the 80% good is covering all the right bases. And the 20% crap is something that we're willing to suck up. And so, yeah, ship it. Go for it. I think, um, in the thread Josh mentioned in Best of Parlay, DHH did a really good job of arguing, um, uh, Yagni, basically. You ain't gonna mm-hmm. need it. And he, he basically said pretty much what David just said and that, you know, you, you can't plan on the future. You don't know what's going to end up at being added. So the best thing that you can do is do nothing. Uh, and Sandy Metz talks about this all the time about how you know, you'll never be dumber than you are right now. You know, <laughs> later you'll know more and you'll have more information. And so when that feature comes around, then you can make a much better choice than trying to plan for, you know, if you say, oh, we're going to need this in the future. Yeah, maybe you are. Maybe you are actually going to need that thing. But maybe that thing ends up getting handled at a different level of the software than one you're even working on now, mm-hmm. right? So if you plan for that future, you're almost always going to be wrong, and you're going to have that cruft. And DHH talked about how you're going to have to yank all that out and then do what needed doing, right? And uh, I... so it's best to, to wait and, and try to find no more. But, but I j- think j- you're bogging down in the, uh, the, the concrete right now um the idea is what 
needs to go into a newbie's head because if it's not in your head, it doesn't come out of your fingers onto the keyboard. Um, and we need to put as many concepts and as many good ideas as possible into the head of, of, of junior developers as quickly as we can. Yes, they're going to screw them up when they put them out. They're going to write bad code. That's the, that's the function of a junior developer. They will write bad code, but is it <laughs> I better? I think it's the function of a <laughs> senior awesome. developer. Yeah. That's uh-huh. true. Just That's more true. of it faster. But but what, what I'm what I'm getting at is is it better for them to write bad code based on a good idea or bad code based on a bad idea? And that's where I think the the crucial the crucial benefit of learning from the past, learning from other people's code, learning from the classics in the the classics in the literature of the field. And by literature, I mean both books and code that has been written before. Yeah. Um, that we 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 extrapolate those I- ideas and feed as many of those ideas as we can into a junior developer, even though we know they are not going to execute those ideas well. It is better for them to write bad code based on a good idea than it is to write bad code based on a bad idea. I think you're right there, Arlen, but I do think that we can go too far in that direction. There's definitely some hurdles in programming where... My answer is, oh, after you have about 500 more conversations with the compiler, you'll figure that out. (laughs) You know, and and sadly, I think there's just certain phases you can't get past without that. Like, you know, I agree that, that giving them good information, giving them good plans and stuff like that is very valuable. But in the same way, I mean, you could start today and decide to read all of the classic books written about programming and then start programming, and you'll die before you get to the part where you get to start programming. Right, but just, okay, so the way to put ideas into somebody's head is not necessarily to, to give them a book about it. I mean, the, there's you really do have to get your hands dirty as you're learning the concepts. And if you give a beginner the design patterns book, I'm going to... I'm. I'd bet that the beginner would look at you and say, this is completely irrelevant. I I can't see why I need to be reading this. And what they really need is is something much, much simpler. And it, But it might not take very long until they are ready to read something from the design patterns, p- pattern book. And I I think that you can't just shovel everything in right off the bat. You, you need to try these ideas out to have, an, have some concept of why they're why they're relevant yeah, yeah th- you're speaking is- of the gang of four book i agree with you katrina that the ad the the intended audience of the gang of four book was the experienced developers not not yeah. not junior developers yeah, but the, gang of the uh the uh head first design patterns book was more aimed at the beginning developer and it, it taught a lot of the same pattern it taught, taught a lot of the same concepts but it taught them in a different way Exactly. Well, well the, that's the, what that's what we need to do with the the juniors. We need to see that they get they get the information in a in a way that they can understand. Right. The, it, so you have to pick the right material. The it, it you know the gang of four book being for experienced programmers isn't a problem with the book. It you know it that's the problem there is trying to give that to to newbies who aren't ready for internalizing that information. Yeah. So. The, right. the, I, there's a word, a phrase that we keep using, which I think is really interesting. Um, we keep saying you can't teach or you can't do. And 
I, I love it when somebody says that because I've I've recently started getting kind of a head itch when somebody's what we used to say when I was growing up was you can't teach self esteem, and um, this was used as a weaselly dodge for anything targeted towards you know teaching anything about character or uh, or esteem or competence or anything like this and it was it was used to basically say we're going to teach self-esteem very very badly and what I've pushed back on lately is is to say anytime you say you can't teach is to maybe step back and say we haven't figured out how to teach yet um, programmers we had a lot of people with Asperger's syndrome and a lot of the teachers have it and, and I'm just picking on one social disorder but the fact is is that we're awkward. And so we've got people that aren't good at being taught, being taught by people who aren't good at being teaching, being, uh, aren't good at teaching. And so when we say, I can't, we can't teach this, I, I think it's interesting to say, well, we haven't figured out how to teach this yet. And some of it's based on like, like the gang of four, you've got to bring a lot of info, a lot of knowledge to the table for that book to be any good. Head first is not achieving the same thing. It's starting with a newbie and teaching them the concept that these patterns exist, but it's not streamlining a whole bunch of information that they have. And so I think it's interesting to, to, to say, we haven't figured out how to teach this. Oh, wait, well, here's a new way to maybe teach this. So I, I'm just throwing that out that there are some of these things that we have said, we can't teach this. Okay. But you can't use that as an excuse to never try. Does that make sense? I think you have a great point there. I was trying to think of a good example of my, uh, you'll figure it out with 500 more conversations with a compiler. And yeah. The one that comes up to, in me is, um, stack traces. Figure, looking at a stack trace and figuring out what's wrong. Mm-hmm. If you watch experienced developers do that, they go right to the problem seemingly yeah. quickly. And, and even when the stack trace is real bad and doesn't, yeah. you know, well point to the problem, a bad error message or something like that. Um, they tend to know where the problem is or what kind of thing has gone wrong. And that thing is, that is really hard to teach. <laughs> you yeah. know, like it's, it's a series of experience you've built up over time and that, oh yeah, when it complains about a missing end or whatever, it's usually because I've, you know, done this thing and, and it's a, a series of instincts that you build over time. But we do teach things to try to help with that. For example, TDD is a great example. If you're following a good TDD cycle, then when the stack trace pops up, your space of where you have to look is significantly less. Right. Yeah. James, what you're talking about is, um, it it sounds like, is that process of internalizing the 10,000 things you need to internalize to become an expert. Yeah. Are people familiar with that concept? Yes. So actually, let's run through uh, that concept. There's a model for uh, skill acquisition called the Dreyfus model. And this is one of the Prague Prog uh, books covered it in a, in a chapter really well. Um, and it talks about five stages for um, developing a skill. And the first stage is a novice when you really don't know anything. The second stage is an advanced beginner where you can kind of follow a recipe, but once you're outside of that recipe, you're unable to get back on track um, without help. There's the competent stage where you can get, you know, you can follow routine procedures and get basic stuff done. And then there's the advanced and the expert levels, the proficient and the expert levels where 
um, you really have a lot of context available to you and it feels like intuition, but really what it is is a lot of really fast processing that's based on a very large amount of experience. That book right. is it, pragmatic thinking and learning, by the way. Right. Thanks. Yeah. It, yeah. And I mean, that's a great summary, Katrina. The, but the, the, when you get to that expert level and you have those, you know, roughly 10,000 things internalized, the, the amazing thing that happens there is that they become sort of automatic. You don't have to stop and think about them because when you, when you start lo working with your sort of, I guess, generic symbolic processing, uh, thought processes, they can, that's some of the slowest thinking you can do. And, if you've internalized something to the point where it's it's more re it's like if you're a musician you can't sit there and think about you know you're looking at the at the sheet music and trying to oh well that's on the bottom line so that's an e yeah uh, you know if you you know you'll never be able to play music thinking at that speed i uh, i once worked with a group of uh kids that were just all straight out of college and they're all brilliant they're very very sharp programmers and my my manager asked so what do you think of the team? And I said, they're brilliant. They can figure anything out from first principles. And he said, but, and I said, well, the problem is that if you want them to do anything, they have to figure it out from first principles. Can we, can we shift this a little bit and talk about software pattern or design patterns in particular? Cause that was one of the topics that, that came up that I guess sparked this whole hmm. uh, podcast. <laughs> and, and it, can you, can you teach someone patterns who, and are they a useful teaching tool for people who don't have the experience and haven't felt the pain yet? And, and, and I guess that, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think saying, that, I think that's sort of the whole point of this conversation here. At so the risk are, of uh, further antagonizing Josh and bringing in uh, chess <laughs> again, <laughs> uh, I, I I coach chess, and I had a high school player who was rated fairly lowly, and I taught him two chess patterns. Um, the Greek gift sacrifice and a rook lift, which is a, a pattern for attacking. And then I taught him an opening that, that, that promulgates the use of those patterns. And his rating doubled in one year. Um, he did not become a master chess player by any stretch of the imagination. And yes, he continued to make mistakes. But that gave him a solid footing that he could build his chess game around. I think we can do the same thing in software development with the software software design patterns. That brings up a good point. It's um, if you're going to choose two or three, which two or three? Mm -hmm. TDD would be really high for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's not a pattern. The, that's true. That's true. Uh, so I, so I, way back when, uh, before injuries, I studied kung fu, and my my sifu was um, was pretty impressive. You know, he, you know, for a man in his thirties, he knew a, a heck of a lot of kung fu, and um, and Tai Chi, which was why I went to go see him. But he, one of the things he taught us was, you know, he, you know, he told us a story of some uh, prince who wasn't very bright, but his father wanted him to study Kung Fu. So his, his Sifu taught him one move, which was like the most basic punch move there is. And that's all the guy ever studied. And he became very good at that one move. And that made him a terribly effective fighter because he had something that he was really, really good at. And now the other side of that, of course, is if you don't have versatility, you're stuck in a situation that you don't have any tools to deal with. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, Arlen, it sounds like you taught some, you taught somebody who is a beginner a couple of things that you knew from your experience. These were useful things to know. 
And so he got the benefit of your mentorship and your greater understanding of what are useful things to know. And then he got to, he got to focus on the, those couple particular things and polish them up and get good at them. And then that let him play in games that were interesting enough that he could learn and become a better player overall. And that's one of the real keys, right? Because so then you're hooked, right? Then you have your thing that works for you and you start doing it. And then someday you run into that chess player or that Kung Fu competitor or that uh, piece of software that is the perfect antithesis to that technique you've mastered, right? (laughs) Yes. And it tears you apart. And then you're like, okay, I want to know how he did that, you know, and it, it hooks you. Yeah, but it's, more to the point, in like in, in the car- place of this particular player I was talking about, and yeah, Josh, some of it came from me, but a lot of it, like the Greek gift sacrifice has been studied in chess circles for the last century, and we've many, many people better than I am have laid out the requirements for it, and all I basically did was point him at them. But uh, um, it it gives you a solid basis. You are now doing something. You are accomplishing something. You're feeling good. You're feeling good about what you're doing, and you want to learn more. And so it didn't stop just with those. I taught him those and that got him on his feet. And from that point on, he was, he was unstoppable in, in picking up more things. Yeah. So we're in violent agreement there. Yes. Yeah. It's that <laughs> yeah, that, desire to learn more, that hook that you put in. Right. If, right. if the only tool you have is nothing here, let me show you this cool hammer. Right. <laughs> and for a right. while, everything's exactly. going to be nails to you, but you're going to do yeah. a lot of hammering. Yeah. So, so the, but, but there's a, there's the circumstances of his learning that and, and, and that's what I, I was trying to focus on was that, you know, he's getting the benefit of your experience and your perspective, you know, telling him, here's a few things that you should study in particular. And yeah, he was learning from mistakes that I had made in the past, essentially. Uh, it's a, it's a technique I've used. I use it with my kids. I told my daughters, I don't know how many times while they were growing up. No, don't do that. That was my mistake. I did that. Trust me. You're not going to like it. I'm a, I'm a bad teacher because I'll take somebody that doesn't know any tools and I'll say, let me show you this hammer. And the last thing you want to do when teaching the hammer is, oh, and by the way, you're going to have to learn a thousand other tools later and you will even end up hating this hammer. That's not how you teach the hammer, you know? <laughs> it's like, let me show you this hammer. It's so freaking cool. You know, in, in three months, you're going to be roofing like a madman. And, you know, ah, I, I can't I can't leave off the, you know, but eventually you're going to hate anybody who uses a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so who who has recently ridden as a passenger in a car driven by a teenager? Not recently. <laughs> Avdi has. <laughs> yeah, where's Avdi when we need him? I, I, I have so for you know when I w- when I had when I was younger and you know you know in college and had friends who were you know driving me around who were fairly new to driving. I I noticed that there was a a distinct difference between the driving per, uh, when the driver had never been in an accident before and when they had been in an accident. Hmm. And and I I figured out after a while that the people who had been in accidents before, I felt much safer in the car when they were driving. That's interesting. Yeah, they have they've developed those skills. I usually go wrong like this, so if I compensate <laughs> yeah. here. Well, yeah. I don't I don't know if if it was so much the skills that they that they leveled up on 
because they decided they were important after they had a, an accident or, been, or had been in an accident or just their whole attitude about driving shifted. Yeah. I've never been in an accident, but I, from age 16, drove like a grandma. And um, like my friends would tease me and harass me about it. And I've had enough near misses in which the buffer zones I had given myself got completely used up and that I did not get in an accident that I, I completely have cemented the habits that I have. And uh, yeah, I have the same thing where I, I haven't ridden recently with a teenager, but I have recently ridden with a 25 year old who had never been in an accident. And it was, yeah, it grabbing, you know, grabbing for the handrest, stamping your foot on the floor, trying to get, you know, I don't have a brake. I'm not driving, but I'm trying to put my foot on the brake. <laughs> All right, Chuck's going to kill me if I let this go much longer. So do we have anything else we need to say about learning from the past? I, I think I think this design pattern discussion, which has had very little design patterns, but a whole lot of patterns in it, has been very, very interesting. Yeah, me too. I think we touched on this a little bit, but like, what are good like introductory patterns? Is the, is the, you know, are there, in fact, any patterns that you can start people off with? That's a really good question, Josh. Like one of the things until recently, like uh, all the teaching techniques uh, I'd seen, you know, it like even in Ruby would start with like non objects and stuff, you know, just teach basic conditionals and things like that. And then there was that uh, really good video from uh, Steve Ragnarok about uh, object first teaching at yeah. Gogorugo, right? Yeah, yeah, his uh, sugar free Ruby talk. Yeah, yeah which I which I just loved. I know, and it was a totally. I mean, here in like the very beginning of teaching, he's doing things like using singleton classes and defining two S and stuff like that. You know, really seemingly low-level details of Ruby, and he doesn't go deep into how they're working or why they're working, but it was really interesting how he was able to totally shift the focus of teaching by doing that, right? Yeah, and, and you know, just as a side note, I, I've probably mentioned this before, but the, the original Smalltalk experiment where they were teaching grade school children how to program in Smalltalk, uh, there, were, there were like two students in the class who couldn't get small talk programming they just kept messing it up and and were never really able to get their brains around it when they when they took a look at what was going on it turned out that that both of the boys in question had fathers who worked for Hewlett-Packard I think it was and had yeah. compute had computers at home and the fathers had already taught their children how to do some programming in basic and they already knew how to or they knew how to bit shift and do rpn yeah the well, glass well, was already well, full. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The glass was mostly full, and you know, yeah. they, and they, you know, said so they thought about programming in terms in terms of go subs. Yeah, and, and go proce sub. procedurals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they, you know, they, it was all the mindset, and it wasn't like they didn't have yeah. the same skills to be able to learn things. It's just their focus yeah. was was already somewhere different. So, where, yeah. like, wh like, what's the focus that that is a great place for people to start, and and mm -hmm. what are the what are the patterns that are are worth people teaching there. I wanted to say the composed method, but I don't think that's a pattern. There's a template method pattern, but I, um, but that introduces inheritance, and I think that could go wrong pretty quickly as well. Well, co well comp composed method is uh, small talk best practice patterns. It's yeah. not one of the Django 4 patterns. I do think it's one of the neatest things you can learn at an early level 
because it shows you how to build software up by layers, right? Yeah. It's interesting. I've been doing software for so long that somebody I'm reading reading Pooter and she talks about single responsibility principle as applied to a method. And I'm like, oh, this is so clever and so clear. And why is this familiar? Oh, this is composed method. Yeah. Um, and but having it described as a method should have a single responsibility is beautiful. It, it was a, a whole new light on composed method. So another thing that comes up fairly quickly, um, I think, is adapter and facade. Um, there are so many programs that go badly because you kind of think you have to go with what's already there. Yeah, when you're using something else. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess a lot of these patterns, be, uh, the, like what's important and what's useful and what's even easy to use depends on uh, not just the kind of software you're writing, but the language you're writing in. Like, like the factory pattern is something that yeah. is really important when you're in Java. And, you know, but if yeah. you're in, in, if you're in Ruby, you sort of get that for free with classes. So you don't yeah. have to pay too much attention to it at the beginning. Yeah. yeah same with iterator. Yeah. And if you're in, if you're in C, flyweight makes a lot of sense. But if you're in a garbage collected interpreted language, you're so far away from the iron that flyweight probably won't ever make sense. Well, and Ruby objects basically are flyweight, right? They're just right. a reference to. You know, some other. Yeah. Something. Yeah, but they're they're down below the level of the matrix, right? You can't you can't access a flyweight unless you drop down into C and implement something down there yourself. I think these examples we're throwing out in the specific cases they help in are kind of a great explanation of why mm -hmm. mentors and stuff are important. You know, what what's valuable to you at any given time? <laughs> really depends on what you're lurking, working on, yeah. what your context is, and things like that. And that's the mentor's opportunity to jump in there, you know, like Arlen does with a chess student and say, ah, yeah. you know what, you're looking for a composed method. Let me show you this. <laughs> you yeah. yeah, the the meta pattern here is, is that any beginner would do well to sit down with any of us. Well, maybe not me, but to sit down with, with, with a mentor and, and say, okay, let's, here's how you carve wood. Let's go. Okay, Katrina yeah, is now yelling at me in the back channel, so we have to go to pigs. <laughs> uh, it was a good discussion. Thanks, Arlen, for um, for joining us. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's do some pigs. David, what do you got? Uh, Lost Treasures of Infocom uh, just came out for uh, iOS uh, it's on the iPad. You would not believe that Zork um, or a pure text adventure is playable well on you know an iPad device but they have really bent over backwards to make the interface workable and you can just about play it without a keyboard playing it with an external keyboard on the iPad is it's, it's like 1983 all over again. It's just fantastic. The old Infocom games used to come packaged with all kinds of spiffs and they called them feelies back then. Um, so you would have, you know, like letters from, you know, the vampire that did whatever or whatever. And, they were, there would be clues to solving the game in the box, printed on the box. And so in order to properly ship an Infocom game, one of these old text adventure games, you really need all of the packaging material that came with it. So what they did with Lost Treasures is you have a 3D copy of the original box. And, you know, like for Amiga and for Commodore 64 and for, you know, these, these ancient boxes. And then you open them up, like you open up Zork. 
and there is a Zork mid inside. You and you can spin it and turn it around and look at both sides of the coin and and see that it's got dimwit flathead stamped on the on the coin and and um it takes you right back to for those of you old enough to be taken back this far it takes you right back to the 1980s um and playing these ancient games um i i highly recommend it it's it's like it's free but you get to pick which games you want just just pay them the 10 bucks to get uh all of the games because they're well worth playing um and remember to play with uh, a map and uh you know take notes as you go or you will not even be able to solve the easy ones like enchanter which i just finished last night um lost treasures of income infocom it's my only pick uh for today and it's just freaking amazing I get a headache just thinking about Zork. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those are yeah. Games. We basically <laughs> replayed Zork one recently, my wife and I, and sat there, one of us running the keyboard and the other one mapping and stuff. Uh-huh. It was a good time. Yeah. Katrina, what do you got? Okay, no tech picks today. I have a cooking pick. Um, I did a bit of cooking away from home this week, and I was reminded of how terrible most peelers are, so uh, I'm picking the Kyocera Mega Peeler. It's a, It has a ceramic blade, it's very sharp, and it stays that way. My other pick is kind of two picks in one. It's a science fiction novel and a sequel. It's called Demon uh, by Daniel Suarez, and the sequel, is, or the conclusion, is called Freedom. And so it starts out, the book starts out with a series of murders where the victims are software developers and the killer is a demon written by a dead guy. Uh, and it, it gets better from there. So, um, yeah, demon and freedom. I can't, so, so was the guy dead before or after he wrote the demon? I do believe he was alive when he wrote the demon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, <laughs> tech, thr- tech thriller. Um, I, I do have to warn you that I am... Not very sophisticated, so I have no idea if this is good literature. It's just a great, fun story. <laughs> awesome, Josh. <laughs> nice. Uh, I, I have a I have a follow on to that, which is the story "Press Enter" by John Varley. And so, so Katrina, if you, if you like Demon, there's a short story by um, John Varley, who's uh, one of my favorite sci-fi writers, and uh, it was a short story called "Press Enter." And I remember the uh, the. It was also a, a, like a locked room murder mystery, you know. In a, and you know there were software entities involved and things like that. But I, rem- I remember the uh, like the murder victim's name. Victim's name was Kluge, <laughs> which I thought was yes. very cute when I read that in the eighties. So um, okay, so so uh, my my uh, my actual picks are um, since we're talking about learning from other people's mistakes, um, I want to submit cakerex.com Yes, as, as a pick. <laughs> Uh, which is, uh, I, I think, a really great, a really great example of, or a set of examples of other people's failures, and, and it's just, it's amazing. You, you go look at the site and you see these professionally created cakes for birthdays and other occasions, and how badly they can go wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, and and then uh, I have a software pick uh, for a change, and that's Middleman. Um, and so I, I've um, I've only just fiddled around with it, uh, but I, I definitely have my eye on this for building my next uh, static website. I'm probably going to convert um, the Gogoruko site to use that uh, in the next year. Uh, but it's it's you know one of these static site generators. This one is built using Sinatra as the as uh, sort of the stitching that keeps it all together. And, but it so you can you know run a little Sinatra app locally to play around with your site during development, and then you uh, 
you know, push a button and out comes all of the pre-rendered static pages for the site. And then you, you know, push that to your server and you're done. So, you know, so you, you, know, you get to use any of the Ruby templating uh, systems for doing the views and, you know, you can use a little Ruby code in how you generate everything. So it's, it's pretty cool. And you, you, know, you use Sinatra uh, DSL for routing. So middleman, it looks really cool. I'm looking forward to simplifying uh, the Gogoruka site using that. So that's it for me. Thanks. That's awesome. I've never seen that before. And I just hearing you describe it, I wonder if in the end it just like turns on rat cache and then goes through and hits every single URL once. I, I, I think that's close to what it does. It's, it's, it definitely has some rack middleware in there that it, yeah, I mean, basically you throw a middleman up. It doesn't work with a bare web server. You have to have rack running. Huh. That's but, awesome. but, it, but it's sort of perfect for pushing stuff up to Heroku. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Okay, I've got a couple of picks real quick. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, patterns today and learning from the patterns that come up, up over and over again in how I create my objects. I noticed there's a lot of patterns to that and how I like to handle attributes and stuff like that. So I've been playing with a couple of gems lately that kind of uh, fit my idea of good patterns. One of them is called the values gem, uh, which is sadly not super easily Googled. Um, but uh, it's a cool thing in that it's Ruby struct class, which I love. Um, and I'm sure Avdi's done a lot of uh, singing of the virtues on it on the show before. Um, but the, one of the problems with struct is that it's really lenient and flexible. You don't have to pass the constructor args. And then, of course, it's mutable. You can change things. Values is that minus the flexibility. So uh, you have to pass all the constructor arguments. You can't change them. They're mutable values and stuff like that. So if you like struct but um, wish it was a little less flexible, that's values. Um, another one I've been playing with recently is Virtus, I think is how you say it. Um, it's uh, kind of an extraction, extraction of data mapper's property API. So you can define the attributes that your um, your object has, which types they are, and they can be coerced and have default values. And then you can have the, uh, you know, data mapper slash active record like uh, constructor where you can pass in a hash of values and stuff like that. So if you find yourself, you know, constantly building up these, you know, Rails-ish like objects, uh, data objects and stuff, this uh, library can get you a long way there, um, which is pretty interesting. And then my last pick, um, this is a, a video about how to use Evernote and, uh, or how somebody uses Evernote. And, um, I, I, by now I have like basically my entire brain in Evernote. So, um, I, I definitely, uh, use it extremely a lot. Um, but the interesting thing about this video was something I hadn't, uh, really gotten before. Uh, stick around to like the last two minutes of the video where he starts showing how he uses this, uh, all this information in Evernote to draw associations. And, uh, basically it's, it's about how, you know, you can make it where when you search for something on the web, you see the things that are on the web plus the things that are in your Evernote. And then you can use those to like draw associations to things you already know. So, uh, really interesting stuff there. Those are my picks this week. How about Arlen? What do you have for us? Since nobody else is doing it, I volunteered to be David Brady this week. Um, the post that I made, um, 
uh, that started all of this was called chess and software development. So it seems only fair that I begin with a chess pick. If you don't know how to play chess, the best thing I can think of for you is uh, a book entitled Guide to Good Chess by C.J. Purdy. If you do know how to be how to play chess and you want to beat the guy in the next the next cube, you want to use Ch- Search for Chess Perfection, also by C.J. Purdy. He is one of the finest writers on chess in the English language. However, if your goal is to become become a competitive chess player, a master-level chess player, there's a nine-volume set by Arthur Yusupov. Three sets of three volumes each. Build up your chess, boost your chess, and uh, chess evolution. And the three volumes in each one are the fundamentals beyond the basic and mastery. Um, I feel com- I feel confident in recommending those, even though the last volume has not yet been published. For a technical pick, uh, I, I really love the Safari Book Service from O'Reilly. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that. It is all of the O'Reilly books, all of the Pearson books, Addison Wesley books, just about every book, every, every technology publisher, but pragmatic public, but but pragmatic programmers for some reason is represented here. And for uh, the cost of, say, six technical books a year, you get access to all of them in an electronic format that you can just pull in and read. Um, it's just absolutely invaluable. Matter of fact, one of my books on the, on my shelf right now is practical object oriented design. So I guess indirectly I'm picking that one too. (laughs) Um, and finally for a science fiction pick, the finest science fiction series ever to be made, uh, Babylon five. Uh, it's, uh, by J. Michael Straczynski and it's a five year, um, story arc. And it is a, it's a fascinating fascinating look at uh interplay among races and just in just in general a, a great piece of science fiction nice awesome all nice. right thank you very the, the, much yeah you've yeah, got another four minutes left uh, <laughs> to even come close to my record <laughs> yeah arlen I, I love babylon 5 i watch it i i've watched that series over and over and my favorite thing about that series is the thing that they say in, in like the very first episode, which is no one here is exactly what they appear to be, is so true. <laughs> and and he just like manages to put all this stuff in in the very first episode and the in the you know first part of the first season that five years later you're like was he really thinking that far ahead? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's amazing the way he weaves these things in and out. The fifth season is kind of weak because they weren't sure if they were going to get a fifth season. So he tied right. up some storylines before he needed, he, before he originally planned to. So basically what you're saying is it's the opposite of lost. <laughs> yeah. It's called found. No, the- <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's okay. a story that starts out completely gibberish. And at the end, it all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Arlen, thanks again for joining us and expressing your concerns and coming and telling us about them. And this was a great call. Yeah. Allowing us to have this great conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And uh, that's it. Sign up for Parlay, where what? we have all kinds of great discussions now with DHH. Mm-hmm. Um, What's next week? Next week. All right, next week is our book club episode, right? I think. Yes. Yes. Um, Practical Object Oriented Design and Ruby by Sandy Metz. Woot. And yeah, it's an absolutely amazing book, and we're going to have a great chat with. Uh, Sandy, who you, if you listen to the show, you know we're pretty much all uh, fans. So 
So yeah, join us next week for that, and thanks everybody.